London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Delton Ann McNeely received a PhD in clinical psychology from Louisiana State University and is certified as a diplomat in clinical psychology through the American Board of Professional Psychology. She studied at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich and completed her training as an analyst with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts in the United States. She is a founding member of the New Orleans Jungian Seminar, where she is a training analyst, and is a patron of the Baton Rouge Jung Society. Dr. McNeely is the author of four books on Jungian psychology, Touching, Body Therapy and Depth Psychology, Animus Eternus, Exploring the Inner Masculine, Mercury Rising, Women, Evil, and the Trickster Gods, and Becoming, an Introduction to Jung's Concept of Individuation. She has also written a memoir, A Russian Lullaby, about the three years she spent living in the Soviet Union. Dr. McNeely's one-act play, Visions of Genius, addresses the relationship between Jung, James Joyce, and his daughter Lucia. It's scheduled to be performed on the evening of March 18, 2016, to benefit the C.G. Jung Society of New Orleans. Tickets are available now for this one-night-only charity event, so please visit our website, speakingofjung.com, for more information. Our talk today focused on her latest book, Becoming, an introduction to Jung's concept of individuation, published by Fisher King Press in 2010. This episode was recorded on February 24, 2016, through the magic of Skype. Dr. McNeely, you've written four books on Jungian psychology, as well as a memoir and a one-act play that's actually scheduled to be performed next month. So I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about each one. Let's start with your first book, Touching, Body Therapy and Depth Psychology. What's that one about? That was a result of writing my thesis uh, and my uh, requirements to finish the training as a Jungian analyst. I had been uh, analyzed during graduate school. I, I, I saw a Freudian analyst, and um, I really loved the analytic work. And Ed Knight was my analyst, who was a mentor to me. He was a wonderful teacher and therapist. And uh, he thought that I would uh, do well as an analyst, and so he encouraged me to apply to analytic training at the New Orleans Psychoanalytic Institute. And they didn't take me. Uh, I had two things against me. One, I was a woman, and they only had one woman in, the, in, their, uh, in their institute. And the other was that I wasn't an MD. I had a PhD, and they only had one PhD. So um, that didn't work out. But I loved... Um, learning about psychotherapy and I joined the American Academy of Psychotherapists. That is a wonderful organization where uh, therapists get together and support each other. So for many years I was part of that group. We did a lot of group therapy and peer group therapy. It was so important uh, in my development and I think it is for most people to have some experience in groups uh, you have a completely different experience of yourself interacting with other people 
than you do with an analyst alone. So both can be very enlightening, but um, it's wonderful if you have an opportunity to do both, which I did. In the course of studying a lot of kinds of group therapies, I came across the body therapies, which always uh, appealed to me. I had a very came from a very physical family, and uh, we, so the, the, I gravitated to those kind of activities. I learned a lot from my uh, primary teacher, Malcolm Brown. I also had wonderful experiences with uh, Alexander Lowen and Al Peso and Gabrielle Roth, and later with Carolyn Fay at the Houston Young Center. So after I finished, uh, was finishing my training and had to write a thesis, I was trying to combine, see how to work in <clears throat> together the, the experiences I had working with the body and the analytic experience where you are non-directive and quiet. Um, so that's why I was motivated to, to write that book, to, to, work, to work out this kind of confusion I felt in myself. Then after that, you wrote a book called Animus Eternus, Exploring the Inner Masculine. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that also was related to my training because uh, I felt, I wrote it uh, when I finished, when I was completely finished with my analytic training, and I was kind of hungry to read literature and poetry because I was so steeped in reading uh, psychoanalytic material during the training program. So it was sort of like a, it was like a vacation to me to um, read poetry and it just appealed to me that I had, uh, was moved by some of the work I had read about women's development. And uh, so I, I, it just appealed to me to uh, illustrate the, the kinds of uh, experiences that women go through in developing a strong inner uh, masculine quality. The anima and animus ideas are not quite as prominent or even as relevant, and some people even don't like to use them now. Mm-hmm. But if you're not slavishly connected to the idea that they're the truth, you uh, can find them useful. So <clears throat> I found it useful to look at women's development of their strength and ability to speak their own thoughts and their own minds, which we uh, women have a hard time learning to do, many, many of us do. Mm-hmm. So I thought, here's a way that people have spoken the truth for themselves in poetry. And then did that book evolve into Mercury Rising? Uh, your third book, Mercury Rising, Women, Evil, and the Trickster Gods. I can't say that it did consciously. And you know, I, I'm having a hard time remembering what the motivation for that book was, except that the trickster archetype is very prominent in my life. Mm-hmm. After I became aware of it and uh, able to stand back and and uh, appreciate it um i wanted to i wanted to e- express that and talk about it 
I think different people are guided by different archetypes in their life, and um, and that that has always been a very strong uh, component of my personality, and I'm attracted to to that quality when I see trickster operating in other people. But I was not happy with the, uh, I was not, didn't feel satisfied with the way it's always attributed to masculine figures. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted to explore that. And, uh, and that's what I tried to do. And uh, when my books are, have more come out of questions for myself that I try to answer by writing my experiences with it. I can't say that I necessarily find answers, but I I like to keep asking the questions. So that the question about how how does the trickster archetype manifest in ways that are can be helpful to women that don't denigrate our uh, and, and you know the trickster stories in in mythology and folk tales. Are are helpful. They are seen. The trickster in those stories of uh, folklore are helpful figures who contribute to the society. Whereas today, we often associate tricksters with meanness or or uh, destructiveness. But I'm more impressed with the fact that the trickster helps us to find our way out of too strong. Uh, rules and conventions and uh, dis- harm- harmful kinds of traps that we get ourselves into. And then your latest book on, at least on Jungian psychology anyway, is going to be the focus of our talk today. And its title is Becoming, an Introduction to Jung's Concept of Individuation. Yeah, for a long time, I wondered about this concept of individuation. It's a conundrum. And the, so does the notion of the self is a conundrum to me. Again, these are really fascinating questions to me. I love the uh, quote the, from the um, alchemist that I, I don't have it in front of me in that book, though, about how he's not sure of, of what he's doing, but, you know, he's, uh, he's trying to find answers and he has no surety and then Jung, I loved that Jung said the same thing in his, uh, in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, that he really he doesn't know what he knows. <laughs> He's not really not sure of any, uh, have any uh, convictions. Uh, and I'm sure he didn't feel like that all the time, but, and neither do I, but I feel like that a lot of the time, that uh, I'm, I, everything is... Uh, Everything is open for questioning. There's a lot of mystery in the world. I enjoy that. I enjoy looking at the behind the trying to look behind the veil or behind the curtain. And um, so I felt that about the concept of individuation. There's so many questions it it raises, and I I tried to address some of those questions, especially for the modern modern human being who um, every part of our lives, it seems, has uncertainty about it, whereas 
when I was much younger in my childhood, there were very definite opposites. We knew what was good and bad. We knew what was male and female. We knew, we, we thought we knew where the boundaries were. But uh, that does, that, that's not true anymore. Everything is uh, in flux. So the whole, the whole idea of whether a person has a right to uh, focus on their own development in the face of all the other problems in the world, is this a completely selfish and solipsistic activity to engage in? Well, I think not. I think that um, that individuation, as I understand it, is very, very important in our expanding our consciousness enough so that we can take in the issues that are uh, that need to be solved and the problems that need to be solved in our society. We can do that much better when we have an understanding of ourselves and our own biases. Um, so th that was one of the main main ideas I had. And I, I wanted to write the book in plain language um, for young people particularly because I don't think that um, that it's available, that, that the concept, Jung's concepts are not always available to people unless they're already interested and, uh, and curious about it. So uh, I, I tried to write a book that maybe would draw people into Jungian work um, without putting too much jargon. In a way, I feel like I, uh, I'm kind of sorry that I used uh, the cultural examples that I did at the time, mentioning movies and things, because um, those became dated so quickly. Uh, the, the world is moving so fast. But I don't know how else to do it, you know. I, the, I wrote the book, I guess, about, uh, what is it? I started writing it about 10 years ago. Things changed a lot. Uh, one of the things that changed is that I do think that, that the profession of psychology and psychiatry, I think they're opening a little bit more. When I wrote, the, when I wrote Becoming 10 years ago, uh, I... Uh, I had a lot of experience of people telling me that they they were presented with a negative view of psychoanalysis, particularly, uh, and that uh, the propensity of physicians to try try to treat disorders or just discomfort with medication was so prominent that. It, that psychoanalysis was seen as something so arcane and time-consuming and expensive that it just wasn't worth it. So that bothered me a lot because I got I have benefited so much from long-term psychotherapy, and I, of course, know many of my patients and other others have also. So it's um, distressing to me to hear that people don't feel that they have time for this kind of slow cooking that we do in analysis. But you know the slow cooking <laughs> it gets a lot more flavors uh, into the 
into the gumbo than um, than when we do something quickly or with already prepared foods. Yeah, it sure does. And and I can personally attest to that because I've done it both ways. I had a very long-term analysis, but I would drop out every once in a while to see if, you know, this pill would work or that technique would work. And I'd always come back to analysis because it was the only thing that did have an effect. And those short-term therapies um, don't go very deep. They'll make you feel good for a little while, but the underlying issues are still there. So um, we'll come back to your book, Becoming. I just wanted to have you tell us a little bit about two other things. One is a memoir that you published called A Russian Lullaby, and it's about the three years you spent living in the Soviet Union. Yes, I went there uh, with my husband, whose job took him there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an extraordinary time. I went there with the, you know, I love uh, having, <clears throat> one of the reasons why I like analysis, I love having long conversations, deep conversations. And I pictured myself sitting in Russian kitchens, drinking vodka and having long conversations about philosophy and politics. And um, boy, was I surprised when I got there because we couldn't talk really to anyone, um, even the people who spoke English, um, because the the, um, the situation was very tense and the, the uh, surveillance was very tight. So people didn't invite us into their homes. Actually, I was invited twice into people's homes, which was wonderful, but it, out of three years, you know, that's not very much. And our interpreters were, uh, some of them were just beautiful people. Some of them seemed like they were, um, they were brainwashed and uh, kind of robotic. But uh, in general, it was uh, such a wonderful uh, growing experience, uh, opened me up to so many things. Uh, the, the book was another, it's another woman's issue, uh, my writing that book, because I, I had adopted children, but I had never gotten pregnant. And uh, I always wanted a lot of children. Lo and behold, I, got, I was there a month and I was pregnant. And, and the Russians said, oh, you're, they weren't really Russians. Um, now they would be called Ukrainians. It was a Ukraine. But at that time, we didn't make the distinction. It was Soviet <laughs> Union. So the Ukrainians said, oh, you're, you're in the breadbasket. You're in the fertility <laughs> section of the world. So, of course, you got pregnant. Well, it was wonderful. But um, it was a har harrowing experience and uh, I had a lot of problems. So um, it was almost like a miracle that uh, I, I managed to uh, give birth to a healthy child. And uh, I wrote the book because um, I wanted women to know that sometimes you have, you have to really hold on to your own instinctual information, the information your body is giving you against a lot of a lot of noise out there from other people, from medical doctors and from uh, family and so on. You have to really pay attention to yourself and uh, 
listen to your body. That's why I wrote that. And then you've written a one-act play called Visions of Genius, Jung, Joyce, and Lucia. And Lucia is James Joyce's daughter, Lucia, who was actually treated by Jung. Tell us a little bit about that. That is scheduled to be performed next month on the 18th in New Orleans at 8 o'clock. And um, there'll be a link on the website uh, if you're interested in buying tickets to that. What's Visions of Genius about? That also... uh you know, I don't plan these things ahead of time. I guess nobody does uh, who writes. Um, but uh, I realize afterwards that here again, I'm trying to uh, to um, support this young woman, or at least the memory of this young woman, uh, Lucia Joyce. There's a lot written about her in the uh, biographies of Joyce and his wife, Nora, and um, everything that I read about it was, she got kind of short shrift, uh, Lucia did. Um, she was seen as uh, had a problem early on in her young adulthood and, uh, and then was described as a schizophrenic. Well, but a wonderful biography of her came out by Carol Schloss and uh, Schloss did a lot of research that hadn't been available and so we know a lot more about Lucia and how much she suffered, how difficult um, her in a way wonderful life was. Of course she was privileged to be living with a famous person but that isn't always good for the children um, and she had a lot of uh, ability and maybe even genius herself that couldn't be developed. And so uh, I, I felt that she was a child who had so many disappointments and um, rejections that she was depressed and angry and that wasn't listened to. She wasn't, that wasn't uh, mirrored for her. And so um, she ended up having a lot of bad treatment before she saw Jung. Anyway, um, I, I, I wanted to write more about her life, but I can't say that this is a great play. You know, it's not going to be, uh, and it's not a lot of action to entertain people. I don't know what the quality of it is as a play. I just know that I enjoyed writing it because I've had for many years, I've been fascinated with the relationship between Jung and Joyce and their personalities. Um, part of my interest in individuation came from uh, studying those two guys and how they, uh, the trouble they had relating to each other. So um, I don't know if it's a good play, but I know that people respond to it because they're interested in the subject matter. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Well, you, you say it, it doesn't have a lot of action, but it sounds like it tells a story. It tells a story. Yeah. And I, I'm interested in showing what was going on in these people. They all were so evolved and smart and um, visionary. They, that's why I called it visions. They were all visionaries. They could see, James Joyce could see the... Uh, 
the, the, the history and the, and the future of, of uh, lit- literature, Jung could see into the future of, uh, of uh, psychic development. Uh, Lucia could have, we don't know what Lucia could have done. She was a, apparently brilliant as a dancer. And I, I identified with that too. So uh, I just wanted to present these people without trying to include their. I have to have to include their kind of nuttiness. You know, everybody has their nuttiness. Certainly Joyce did, and certainly Jung did. But um, but to see that beyond those complexes that they had was such deep, deep insight into the psyche. I wanted to be sure and get that across so that, you know, people got, Jung uh, was written off by some people as stupid or uh, unartistic because he wrote a very critical review of Ulysses. But Jung certainly wasn't dumb. He, He was coming from a place that's, I think understandable and uh, showing us uh, the dark side of modern art and its fragmentation and its reflection of the, the decadence and, uh, and turmoil in our society, which of course is the right and the duty of, or the responsibility, not a duty, but it's the responsibility of an artist to show what's really happening. But it's also the responsibility of the psychologist to say, you know, some of this is going to be very difficult for us to deal with. People are going to get sick. People are going to be um, uh, need to be medicated. So trying to ask the questions about that, that open up more consciousness about, about their lives. Um, your description on the flyer uh, the questions that you ask um, about how the play raises questions about art and madness and what happens in the individuation process of the artistic genius and what's the role of the artist in a modern society. These are fascinating questions. And The last question yeah. about, she, about the difference in behavior between men and women. Right. Because that's what this child, uh, that, that's her story. You know, the, the men in the family were allowed to express themselves in very un- unconventional ways, but mm-hmm. she wasn't. When she was unconventional, she was out of line and, uh, you know, had to be hospitalized. She was there for a while, but then she was moved to the home or the clinic of a Dr. Brunner, and uh, she saw Jung in his office privately. He had his assistant, Carrie Baines, working with her as a kind of a social, a, a mother figure, mother surrogate, uh, who would take her out on, you know, take her out and so she didn't get institutionalized. She would go with Carrie riding or to coffee shops or to concerts. And, and then he tried to do a conventional psychotherapy with her. Mm-hmm. She was so angry and she... She saw him as a very um, old bourgeois Swiss, you know, uh, fuddy-duddy. 
So she, she could, she, and I, here's an example of how she probably would have stayed in that kind of negative transference with him for a long time if she had been supported um, to keep going and to, uh, to live apart from her parents. But her parents, particularly Joyce, was very, um, very worried about her, very afraid of, of letting her suffer. And um, after, I think she saw Jung for about four months, and they took her out, moved her. I want to say that when, when people are in therapy, if they can understand that there are periods that we go through, but if we work through them, we come to the other side. We come. That, that was my whole uh, focus in, in becoming, that we come to the other side of our complexes and we have almost some like an alchemical experience of, of a transformation. I think she could have benefited from staying with Jung much longer um, because patients often have a year uh, of or more of working on negative transference issues before they get past that into something more uh, pleasant and valuable for them. Not valuable, that's valuable too, but more pleasant. So would you say that she, because she didn't stick with it, she didn't stay, that she actually did not individuate and did not live up to her full potential? You know, I think you can never, never make a judgment about another person's individuation process. Yes, and you mentioned that in the book. That's why I bring that up. Yeah, no, you can't say, you can't say that. I don't know what her purpose in life was. I don't know what her uh, abilities were. Uh, so what happened to her happened. I could write a, <laughs> I could write a, another play about how I wish it would have happened, but that is uh, that's not not my right. Today, I I want to focus on on your latest book on Jungian psychology called Becoming: An Introduction to Jung's Concept of Individuation, because I want to provide for people as detailed as possible of a description, sort of an explanation. What is it? What does it mean? And how is it different from other, as you say, programs of self-knowledge? You explain in the book, which I love, the book is in three parts. You say three parts, sort of like how a play is broken up into three parts. And part one introduces the main characters, for instance, Jung. Part two describes the action of individuation. And part three is like the director's notes, where you actually include material from a huge variety of sources, Jung's collected works, um, other analysts such as John Dorley and Murray Stein, both who've done this show, uh, and a whole host of others from science to literature. And you call that section the Lenya. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You say, Lanya, uh -huh. you say it's a, a term used in Louisiana, sort of like an extra bonus. Um, yeah. The, the 13th donut when you buy a dozen. I love that. So there are 21 chapters and 21 Lanya. 
So let's start with actually the preface. I love the preface of the book. You say that that you wrote the book to leave to your grandchildren and others of their generation uh, an understanding of the ideas of Jung. And you say, it saddens me that the principles that guided me have been dismissed by the current trends in psychology and psychiatry. I'd like you to explain to us what you mean by that, that the principles have been dismissed. What's going on in psychology and psychiatry today where this sort of process you describe as slow cooking is not generally acceptable? Is, just, is this just a question of insurance, medical coverage? Uh, that is a lot of it. But no, I think it's a question of our, our lifestyles now that uh, we're so busy and we don't, we don't seem to have time. I, I just spoke earlier about how beneficial it is to be in a group. It's hard to get a group therapy group together these days because people work long hours. Uh, they, they, you have a hard time getting three people together at the same time. Yeah, but you know, I got to say that people don't seem to have a hard time. And, and you know, I'm going to get emails about this, but people don't seem to have a hard time um, showing up for soccer practice, you know, getting their kids to the volleyball tournament. Those yeah. are those are groups and they manage to function and function really well. And what I've been noticing in our society anyway, is this focus on and kind of importance that's put on things like that on sports, yeah. you know, on entertainment. Yeah. We're not really putting any importance on our relationships and get on, how to get along with each other and work through our issues. We just want to, you know, make the soccer team. Mm -hmm. uh, not that that's not important. I think that uh, exercise is really important. And, but everything is very tightly scheduled. You don't, see kids going in very many places, going out, playing the streets after school. So things are very structured. There's a lot of structure. There's <clears throat> a lot of feeling that things must be done uh, quickly. And uh, here's the thing that I see that bothers me. Young people are distressed, and understandably. Uh, there's so much uh, question in their lives now. Things aren't clear. So a lot of young people experience anxiety and depression. Instead of feeling like they can give that years of understanding to come to the come to understand the depths of themselves, they go to uh, a medical doctor or someone who is some kind of uh, advisor who gives them medication to relieve that anxiety and depression, which works for a while. And I don't mean that that should never be done. I, I think that medication is life-saving. But to have it only as the first resort, it, it discourages or, or disinclines people to work on themselves, to try to figure out how to deal with this depression, how to deal with this panic disorder, how to deal with this anxiety. Um, it, it takes time and it takes a lot of experimentation to find out how to deal with it. But we don't, we don't encourage people to do that. I, I didn't have uh, 
the information, I, I, I had some information about long-term studies of psychotherapy uh, mentioned in the book, but at that time, Jonathan Shedler's work was just being published, so I didn't have that. But there are a lot of, uh, th- there's a lot of research now to show that, that uh, anxiety and depression are better uh, treated with psychotherapy than with medication. Now, that, that being said, I'm, there's a whole gamut of psychological issues that require medication. And so uh, I'm not trying to say that uh, those don't exist. But I do think that, and I understand that in uh, medical schools that psychiatry doesn't teach psychoanalytic most, many, many, I can't speak for all, many schools of psychiatry do not teach um, psychoanalytic theory. So therefore, people don't learn about the power of the unconscious. We have a lot of academic psychology focusing on learning. Learning is very important, and we do learn much of our behavior, but conscious learning doesn't doesn't account for the kinds of problems that we get into because of not understanding our unconscious unconscious motivations. So that is one of the one of the differences I see between Jung's concept of individuation and other self help and self development programs is that um, other programs often don't deal with shadow work, by which I mean the, the negative parts of ourselves that we uh, have to face consciously, talk about, practice dealing with, and uh, so on, until, until we, we can feel confident that we're not going to act on them. I just was listening to something this morning about guns in America and how violent of a culture we are. I was listening to somebody in Japan, an American in Japan, talk about um, what she hears. She was asked, what are the Japanese people saying about Americans? And she said, well, they think that we all own guns. And she said, you know, there are no guns over here. So when you were talking about how we're not, in general, as a society, encouraged to do any shadow work. Do you think that a consequence of that, of not knowing what we're capable of, or these other sides or other aspects of ourselves, other parts of our personality, that because of that, we act out violently? I think that's very relevant. What you're saying is relevant because the less we know about our own evil, the more we see it in other people or in other situations, um, it's easier to get into blaming and, uh, and counteracting evil when we see it outside of ourselves. But if we look inside, we are more inclined to see how we might be like these people that we call enemies or bad guys, see where they're coming from, have some capacity to um, negotiate or to deal without uh, <clears throat> immediately going into conflict. 
So yes, I, I think that that is one of the uh, important aspects of Jungian psychology is to, to encourage us to um, try to find the common ground rather than to oppose ourselves. I had explained at the beginning that the book is divided into three parts. And I want to jump to the beginning of the second part, uh, chapter nine, which for me was sort of the real meat of describing the individuation process. That chapter is called The Opus, Finding the Spirit in Matter. And that's where you break it down and explain that individuation is actually a three-stage process. Yes. And you're also very careful to note that it's not necessarily linear, that sometimes we move randomly back and forth between the stages. Oh, sure. No, the stages are not, yeah, they're not clear-cut. No. And that as far as where we begin, um, you said that it you know, depends on the individual and that we need to look at the state of consciousness that we actually begin with. And what I thought was interesting about stage one, you say we begin with a sacrifice. What did you mean by that? Well, we always begin with either we're suffering and we, we're trying to find out why, or we're very uh, curious and dissatisfied or um, feeling incomplete. So we, we always start with something that has to change or be given up or to, uh, we, we have to decide that we're not going to go to the soccer game or we're not going to go to the entertainment and we're going to spend our time and our energy uh, within looking looking at ourselves. I just want to clarify something. Um, I, I, I'm picking on soccer. I myself happen to go to a gym pretty much every day. I do think, as you said, we need our exercise. For me, what I'm seeing is the importance that seems to be put on hockey and soccer and volleyball and swimming for kids at the expense of schoolwork, of scholastics. Mm -hmm. And for instance, my sister-in-law, I know she won't be listening to this, she said that she spent 13 hours uh, last weekend at the uh, volleyball tournament for her teenage daughter, my niece. And I thought, okay, well, but how is she doing in her math class? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is that not because I never hear them talk about that. Why is that not important? Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Mm -hmm. So stage one, we begin with a sacrifice, and you say that... Let's say a little bit more. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I think that's a really important question. These sports are wonderful for children, they, and they learn so much good stuff that they're not getting in academics. But there's a way in which... In our society, we've almost made sports a religion. Yes. And for adults, it certainly is a religion. I mean, look at the Super Bowl. Um, it, it has taken the place of uh, spiritual uh, need for spiritual uh, comfort in some way. Not that it's bad or, or wrong, but it's, it's kind of one-sided. Mm -hmm. I think you feel, you're feeling that it, it's, it has taken so much 
where, where is that energy coming from? Where, where, where is that need coming from to have this kind of competition and sports and development? I'm not giving an opinion, but just trying to uh, say, let's look at this, which I think is what you're doing too. Getting back to the three stages of the individuation process, I found it really interesting, because I didn't know this, that you point out how, on the one hand, individuation is a natural process, yet Jung describes it as the work against nature. What what does that mean? Well, I think he meant that, uh, and that's where the sacrifice comes in, what's easiest for us what we're inclined to by our experience and our training and our typology is not always um, what what's best for us, but it's never all that we could that we could uh, do. We, we 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 come to a point where we are kind of um, on our easiest ways of expressing ourselves, and sometimes we find out that things aren't going right so we we have to we have to adjust we have to give up some of our easy ways or some of our we have to discipline ourselves in some way in order to get to another attitude or another state of being so the sacrifice is often to stop doing what comes naturally to stop feeding ourselves the uh, the uh, wrong ways of life and to start looking at how we nurture ourselves in healthier or more more I don't, I don't mean just physical health although I mean that too but more fulfilling more fulfilling ways that that's that's the going against our nature going not letting our complexes um, lead us into the kind of behavior that we usually do but questioning it and stopping ourselves and looking at how we might how we might be different how we might do things differently and how we might feel differently how we might what attitudes we might be so steeped in that we can't imagine that somebody else could have a different attitude that has to be looked at and maybe even given up you also mentioned that Jung says that the process cannot be accomplished without, one, including the needs of the instinctual body, and two, being in a relationship to another human being. And I had tweeted that because I started tweeting quotes from this book about a week ago, and that got a huge reaction on Twitter. People wanted to know more about part two, being in a relationship with another human being. So what did Jung mean by the process of individuation cannot be accomplished without including the needs of the instinctual body. And then we'll get to part two. You could think of a self-development process in which you um, could imagine an ideal self, how to behave the way you want to behave, how to think and believe what you want to believe. And that would be all abstract. It's all in your head about this ideal person you could be. Until you look at what you're capable of, what your physical body needs, 
if I had my ideal person, I'd be playing in a symphony orchestra now instead of being a psychologist. I, love, I, I find nothing more exciting than being in the middle of an orchestra, which I, I have a little tiny, tiny experience with the group, but to be in a huge orchestra uh, interpreting music that way, I don't have the talent or the uh, body for that. You know, it, it, it wouldn't have worked. I, I, I couldn't be a ballet a ballerina, but uh, I find out what I can do and have to listen to what I need and what I want. You, you can have a lot of ideas about what kind of loving person, uh, what kind of wonderful marriage you're going to have, what kind of parent you're going to be, until you find out what kind of um, instincts and emotions you carry and what kind of history of behavior you are, uh, you are uh, inclined to. So it's about knowing who you are. That That's another one of my pet peeves is when I hear people say to kids, you can be anything you want to be. Yes. And I think that is not true. I'm sorry. I'm five foot three. I cannot be a professional basketball player. So don't tell me that I just had to work hard and I could you know, make a professional basketball team. It's not going to happen. That's not who I am. And every child does not have to go to graduate school. There are wonderful professions that people can do for years and years that use the body, that use skills of making things and uh, fixing things and dealing with stuff that uh, a lot of people can't do. But those, those, see, those things that have been denigrated in our society. We, we don't uh, honor trades that take skills, manual skills, as much as we do verbal uh, pyrotechnics. So that's what Jung meant then about including the needs of the instinctual body. And then the other sort of requirement is being in a relationship to another human being. And I had somebody on Twitter write to me and say, well, okay, I, th I thought you meant a romantic relationship. That's not at all what he's talking about here. Oh, no, no. It means that you have to put yourself up against another person. or uh, And I say against because uh, I don't mean in conflict, but I mean to hear yourself, to hear, to hear what you will feel and do. Um, you, can't, you can't do this all by yourself. You know, I got stopped for, by um, a cop a few weeks ago, and I was amazed at my reaction. I, I got kind of stupid, and um, I thought, you know, I really thought I was beyond uh, <laughs> reacting this way to a, an authority figure. But um, in the moment, I was so surprised and so, um, you know, kind of uh, anxious that I, I really didn't like the way I handled it. Uh, so we don't know. We don't know what we're capable of. Another thing is that uh, I've learned a lot about um, having to be close to people with a different typology. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we have to do this in our in our relationships and as parents, the difference in styles of thinking and feeling are really very interesting and very provocative. 
And if you want to find your shadow, you spend a lot of time with a person who's of a different typology and try to come to uh, try to discuss debatable issues and behavior, you know, entertainment and so on. It's very interesting. You learn a lot. So we don't individuate alone. We need, uh, we need mirrors. We do, yeah. Yeah. And opponents, and opponents. We need mirrors and, and we need uh, the challenges, challenges. You know, if you, what's that story that Robert Bly tells? When Jack stole the cow, uh, stole the cow for beans, and he came home and gave the beans to his mother. If she had been a really um, kind and um, supportive mother, she would have said, oh, that's very good. I know you did your best. And she put the beans on the shelf. Instead, the mother said, what kind of idiot are you? She threw the beans out in the yard. And if that hadn't happened, the whole, there would be no story. The, the beanstalk wouldn't have grown up. So... We need challenges, is what I'm trying to say. When we're challenged, or when we're not getting along with someone, we tend to think, well, this relationship isn't working out, we're, you know, we're not compatible, mm-hmm. or we're outgrowing each other, what, what, what do people say? And so the relationship needs to end. Instead, there sometimes is a lot uh, to be gained from a relationship like that, if you stick it out. There's a lot to be said for processing, process, process, process. Talk about how that makes me feel, how you make me feel, how this doesn't work for me, how I have to do this for you and you, and I need this from you and you don't give it to me. And that has to be talked about. That happens in analysis too. And um, uh, uh, the same problem can arise if a person says... um, I went to several sessions with this therapist and uh, nothing, you know, I didn't change, nothing, uh, I didn't get anything out of it. So, okay, maybe it was a terrible therapist or maybe you were looking for something that couldn't happen in one or two sessions. Maybe you needed to tell the therapist that, you know, whatever your unhappiness was or your dissatisfaction was. And the process could have gone on from there. Something uh, also that you point out in stage one is about families. You say that the designated patient in a family system is sometimes the one who is most aware of the unspoken problems and can't fit in with the system. They are the one who is seen as abnormal when often he or she is the one who's reacting most naturally to a dysfunctional family system. Mm. I thought that was really interesting because there is still this stigma associated with therapy or any kind of psychological help, and that includes analysis. And usually it's the healthiest one in the family that seeks out some sort of assistance. I think that often happens. Uh, it, it it may be that that one is more conscious of what's going on and the others can all hide behind their defenses and try to keep the uh, try to keep the equilibrium of the family going and the uh, 
the squeaky wheel is the one who is seeing. You know that could you could apply that to the Joyce family as far as I know. I mean, we don't we weren't there. I, I, this is all conjecture, but Lucia Joyce was the one who uh, who who loved Joyce's writing and who talked to him about it and and uh, read his stuff. His wife didn't read it. His son didn't read it. Um, they all kind of, you know, just went along uh, with their own interests. But but the son was the first one to insist that Lucia's behavior was abnormal and she had to be hospitalized. Her brother mm-hmm. was the one who sent it to an institution. So, yes, uh, that happens in families. Mm-hmm. And another part of the first stage is, um, you talk about complexes, is to learn to see what's behind our complexes, to stop and reflect before reacting, and that that requires concentrated effort and the help of another understanding person to keep us on track. So just really briefly, what is a complex? It's a uh, typical, your typical reaction to... uh, a situation that carries some emotion for you. It's uh, it's your customary way of handling something that could get uncomfortable, too too much feeling, too much excitement, too much emotion. So we we learn how to deal with these provocations in ways that work, and usually, of course, they worked in our families, but they don't always work in the rest of society. And then we, we, we don't know. They're largely unconscious. They're like parts of ourselves that are, Jung called them sub-personalities. They're parts of ourselves that come out unprepared, un- unbidden, when we are faced with situations that stir them up. Um, Jung thought they were always um, connected to an archetypal experience. Uh, I didn't want to get into that in the book. It gets too complicated and, uh, and, and theoretical. But um, when we have an archetypal experience that always moves, the uh, archetypal experience always moves us some kind of uh, deep emotional way. And we we develop ways to uh, deal with that in, 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 as comfortably as we can. But sometimes they're not, uh, they don't have an adaptational uh, effectiveness. So we're, essentially, we're unconscious when we're in a complex. And you explain that individuation means that we've learned to see and resist acting impulsively out of our complexes. Hopefully, yes. And that's not an easy thing to do. And like you mentioning that you were pulled over by a cop the other day and you didn't like the way you handled it. So would you say that you were (laughs) in a complex? Absolutely, yes. Yes. I was in a father complex at this stage in my life. Isn't that crazy? Well, (laughs) <laughs> From what I understand, they our complexes, they never go away. They just get, maybe they get smaller, more manageable. Yeah, they get more manageable and we learn, we learn how to treat them differently. And we, um, if we become wider, we become 
become more conscious, our consciousness widens, they, they're, they're not as big a part of it. They're, they're, their proportion is smaller. So just to finish up on stage one, um, you do talk about discomfort and how it needs to be permitted. And you said that to understand and untangle our complexes and to face our character faults and inferiorities, then bring our lives together again, like we've been saying, is a long, slow process. And it's painful and disappointing at times. And I think that um, whenever I talk about being in analysis for 17 years or just how people see me and I'm not a happy-go-lucky person. I never have been and I never will be. And I sometimes people, they just kind of wonder, well, oh, you've had all this therapy. And, you know, it's feel-good approaches. From my experience and my observation, they, for the most part, don't work. And I liked how you explained how discomfort needs to be permitted yeah. in, in this process. Well, discomfort in s several ways. For example, when people um, break up from a romantic relationship, the impulse is to get back into another romantic relationship as fast as possible to, to keep from feeling that pain, that loss. Um, stage one would mean, no, look, feel the pain, uh, feel the pain, feel the loss, um, something to be gained by uh, coming through that to, and learning maybe what, what you did to uh, bring on the pain or how you, could have, how you could have handled it differently or what you could have said or done or what what you could have expected of the other person. And there's so much to be learned mm -hmm. by looking at, the, at that experience rather than trying to solve it by moving on. Uh, why am I drinking so much? Why do I have to take pills for this and that? Uh, what if I try not to do that? What if I, what if I quit smoking? What is going to come up for me um, about my dependency needs and my anxiety. Um, that Those are all sacrifices, you know, to, to quit a kind of behavior that comforts you mm -hmm. but, doesn't, but doesn't help you. Yeah, sometimes it's scary on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. So stage two is the stage of self-awareness. Wholeness is brought into full-blooded reality here so that one lives it out fully in everyday life. So after we've gone deeply enough, you say, into our unconscious to not only uncover, I love this, to not only uncover our unreasonableness, but to face it and deal with it, we now find and bring up our creative energy. And like we keep saying, this takes time not the eight to 10 sessions allowed by managed care. It's the work that we do when, when we're not preoccupied with um, the problems of getting drunk or losing weight or losing our temper in, in, in violent ways. 
but we're but now we have kind of gotten past that, <clears throat> and we're having to see what life is like without those old habits. What what is it now? What 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 do we do now? What kind of relationships are we in now? What what kind of what are we going to do with our energy that is available after we've given up our destructive habits? Um, it's about living, living uh, creatively and living enjoyably. Le- learning how to live with as little conflict as possible. Learning how, learning how to enjoy life and be have uh, satisfying activities and relationships. I guess you, Freud said, uh, you know, learning to love and work, being able to love and work. Um, and uh, that, that, that's one way of saying it. You also describe it as the point we've come to know that our ego's view of life is not the whole picture. Uh-huh. That we become comfortable trusting in the self instead of our own plans for ourselves. We are learning that our ego desires are not the primary thing that gives us satisfaction. Mm-hmm. That if we listen, if we listen to the unconscious through our dreams and our inclinations through our complexes, we find out about ourselves. We we get a much wider picture of ourselves, and we begin to see that there's, there there are some values that supersede what we think we need from an ego point of view, that we can um, tolerate not getting our way about everything, mm-hmm. uh, not not having everything we want at our moment's notice, but to see a larger picture. I think most successful therapy would say that you have come to a point, end of stage two, where you're feeling pretty good. You're getting along pretty well. Other words that you use to describe this stage are contented, humble, and grateful. And you also point out in this stage that individuation is never complete. I think that's another really important point to make is that we're never finished. We're never done. It's never over. Right. Stage three, you say, is transformative. This is the stage of awareness of powers in the psyche greater than oneself. And there you're quoting uh, the analyst Al Schooler. I'm uh-huh. not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh-huh. And that Jung called this stage the unus mundus, yes. one world. Yes. Being able to unite the opposites. What exactly does that mean, being able to unite the opposites? It means that you aren't you don't feel divisions in yourself. You feel that you you are aware of your shortcomings and your faults or your inability, and you feel humble about that, but you aren't suffering from it because you have a center outside of yourself, you have a center in the self, which Jung called the, the center of the uh, psyche, whereas the ego 
ego is the center of the personality of one your your one personality. The larger center of the psyche, <clears throat> which would be the great uh, consciousness of all psyches, is the self. That's a very difficult uh, concept to deal with. Yes. Um, but Jung felt like that we have in us and not just the instincts for sex and power, but we also have an instinct for kind of some kind of spiritual center that um, it comes out differently in different people, but the, the place of it is not within the center of the personality. The place of it is out, a little bit outside, outside of ourselves. It's like a, um, a wonderful uh, poem about that is the, about the spider. I can't remember which uh, chapter that's in, but the spider who, who spins a filament and directs it outside of itself to, to hold on to, to where it holds. It's like uh, our souls or our desires and uh, inclinations lead us to throw some kind of spiritual filament out into the universe where it catches hold and where we feel like we have a, an anchor outside of our own selves. That is often what people refer to as God, but it can be any kind of uh, way of defining it that works for you. But it means that you have a um, connection to the world that is not, that is foresighted and not limited to your own needs and your own ego desires. You say that in this stage, the third stage, we see the world as one body. And I'd like to read a little something. You and I were originally scheduled to do this interview yesterday, and we had a few technical glitches and had to postpone it, reschedule it for today. But yesterday when I was preparing my notes and, and getting ready uh, to record with you, I realized that Yesterday, the 23rd of February, was the day of the memorial service for one of our astronauts who had passed away earlier this month, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. He was the sixth man to walk on the moon. And when I, I had taken notes on this third stage of individuation, and it reminded me of something that I had heard him say in a, I have a bunch of documentaries, I'm very interested in the Apollo program. And because so much has been written about him lately, I found this in, in an article on Bloomberg.com. It tells the story that he told when they were returning from the moon. I think it takes about three days to fly there and three days to fly back. Edgar Mitchell described a moment that he had during that return trip where he could see the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars out the window of the spacecraft. And he said, Suddenly, I realized that the molecules of my body and the molecules of the spacecraft and the molecules in the body of my partners were prototyped and manufactured in some ancient generation of stars. And that was an overwhelming sense of oneness, of connectedness. It wasn't them and us. It was, that's me. That's all of it. It's one thing. And it was accompanied by an ecstasy, a sense of 
oh my God, wow, yes, an insight, an epiphany. And to me, that's, that's a very kind of intense version of, yeah. of stage three of the individuation process. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. And many people have that experience. It might, ha- it might be for a short time. It might be an instant. It might go on for years uh, of that kind of, uh, that kind of experience of ecstasy. Uh, but uh, that is, I think, what young men, yes. That's by the unus mundus. For me, there's no self and other. There's no uh, having to take care of myself in this world of others or otherness. You are the world. The world is you. The divine is you. It's in you. It's part of you. You are, it's all, it's all part of you. So uh, I think that when people come to, to study, and this has similarities to what I know about mindfulness, that there's the same kind of uh, process going on, that you're becoming mindful through psychoanalysis to so much more than you realized you were connected with as you get deeper and deeper into those roots of the psyche that uh, expand throughout the universe, you are finding a source of joy and comfort there that is hard to describe. The astronaut did a very, Mitchell did a very wonderful job of putting that into words, but often we can't find words for this, but we know how it feels to feel like there is a place beyond our own self, our own ego self, that is holding us or that is present, that we are present in, and we are all we are all able to be there. We call it by different names. That feeling or the capacity to feel that comes through looking at oneself, either through mindfulness or through analysis. And it's almost as if, well, this is how I understand Jung's, uh, Jung's fascination with alchemy. alchemy. It's almost like an alchemical process this, what I'm calling transformation or transcendence that happens in the third stage. Something gels as if you're, you know how when you're cooking a sauce and there's that moment where suddenly it becomes solid, Mm -hmm. changes from liquid to solid, right before your eyes, right in your hand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen like that in in analysis, but it happens that way, that you eventually um, find that you've moved into this other space. You've moved into another way of looking at everything. Everything looks different. Yes. Everything feels different. Wonderful uh, guru, I think it was Krishnamurti, I might be wrong, said, I don't mind what happens. Well, that's it. Uh, things happen. Things hurt. You have frustrations. Life is cruel, there is suffering, but you don't mind what happens. You're glad that it's happening. Something is happening. (laughs) Something is there. And that something 
that connection, I think, to the self is because it's an attraction, because it's a, it's because it's a, a recognition of something similar or identifiable. It carries love with it. It carries a sense of needing or wanting or desiring to express itself. So, if it was not attraction or love, we would be repelled by it. But we are drawn to it. We're yes. drawn to this experience of what Jung called wholeness, or of finding meaning, or of uh, uh, having a spiritual life, or however you want to think of it. We are drawn to it. And when we find it, or when we feel like we're getting it, we feel love, we feel gratitude, we feel like we want to, to let other people know about it, we want, we want to give, we want to generate more love. I really appreciate all of the effort Dr. McNeely put into making this interview happen. She was absolutely delightful. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for links to all of the books that were mentioned today. Four of Dr. McNeely's books, including Becoming, are available through Fisher King Press, who also has ebooks available through Google Play, which is what I happen to use to read them. It's a wonderful format available on Apple, Android, and e-readers. I installed the Google Play app on my iPhone and my iPads, so I had the books with me wherever I went. And on my computer, I was able to log into Google and access the books in my browser. I highly recommend it. Her first book, Touching, is available through Inner City Books. Please visit our website for more details. On our website, you'll also find links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes and on Stitcher. Recently, I was a guest on two other shows, Beyond the Strange and The Mind's Eye, in order to help introduce Jung to a whole new audience. You can listen to those shows as well by following the links on our site. So with special thanks to Mel Matthews at Fisher King Press, and my eternal gratitude as always to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung